Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So what are we talking about today? So it's been a little while since we have talked about doing lower dimensional representations of high dimensional data, which is something that comes up a whole lot when you're working with big data sets. And in particular, there's an algorithm called UMAP that's eh, relatively new and, and pretty cool in this space. And I thought that would be worth spending some time on. Sounds good. You are listening to Linear Digressions. All right. So this will be yet another episode on embeddings, which is something that we have covered before, but it's probably worth having that as the starting point of the discussion here today. And then I think the stuff that comes later where we talk about UMAP will make a little bit more sense. Embeddings is the thing where you have a really high dimensional space and you need to make it into a lower dimensional space, right? To deal with it. Yeah, that's right. So this comes up very often when we're talking about word or, or text data, because potentially each word in your vocabulary can be a dimension in the what we would call the original space. And there's typically thousands of words uh, in most languages. So it comes up a lot there. The particular algorithm that we're talking about today, uh, UMAP, is one though that's a little bit more all-purpose. It isn't necessarily designed for text data, although I suppose you could use it for that if you wanted to. Uh, but generally, the application is, yeah, you got you hit the nail on the head. I have this very high-dimensional data, and for various reasons, I think it'll be easier to work with in some kind of lower-dimensional representation. So I want to reduce the dimensionality, but in a way that preserves the information of the original data set as much as possible. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the challenge in general of embeddings is finding a good way to represent the data so that the patterns in the data are still there, even though the dimensionality is smaller. Right. So make the data easier to work with without losing while, while losing as little data as possible, I guess. Well, you're okay with losing columns of data or something you're okay oh, yeah. you know you're okay with going from like 10,000 to 100 features guess, or signal something rather than data yeah it's i mean we're starting to get into the yeah the distinction between like data and information or something if you like mm. that's a little bit of a di of a digression but you can see how uh you know perhaps not all embeddings are created equal yeah this actually makes me think of um data compression uh, whether it's uh, audio or video or image codecs like JPEG files or MP3s. Uh, and I mean, when you're talking about media codecs, really the goal is to throw away as much of the data as possible while retaining enough that you can make an image or um, an audio file that sounds or looks pretty much the same to a human. So I guess in that case, it's it's specifically targeting uh, human perception. So I guess that's why the, the audio file that you're listening to right now is not tremendously large. Oh, because it's MP3 instead of... It's an AF. MP3, yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that... MP3s are like one twelfth the size or something at our bit rate, I think. Yeah, uh, that sounds about right based on what I've seen from doing editing anecdotally. But no, I think it's actually an interesting digression. I'm going to I'm going to pull on this thread just a little bit. I promise Ooh, okay. we'll we'll bring it back to you map in a second. So, I like the comparison that you started to make between compression and the idea of a, a lower dimensional representation. I think there's actually a lot of shared theory between 
the the core of some of these dimensionality reduction algorithms and information theory. So if you're learning about information theory or if you're an expert in that, which I am not, but I know a little bit to be dangerous, I, I think it's really interesting. So the whole task of information theory is you have like a message in one place that you want to represent in another place and you want to do so in a way that's as efficient as possible. And so a lot of times that means like finding a different representation of the message that preserves what we call the information of the of the original message as much as possible but with a, a smaller amount of data that you have to transmit. Right, right. And so there's this notion of the information content of the original message and the information content of the of the message after it's been transformed or transmitted or whatever. And so thinking about the best, the right ratio between those two information contents and, and the actual algorithm by which you transform from one to the other, all of that is core information theory stuff. And so one of the key concepts in information theory that helps quantify the relative information content of two different messages is uh, this measure called a Kolbeck-Leibler divergence. I think I'm saying that right. The idea is you have the message in its original representation, you have the same message in its transformed representation, and the KL divergence is basically a, a an expression, a formula that allows you to compare the two of them and say, how much information have I lost when I did mm. the, the transformation here? I see. So that's, that's kind of how you can, because in order to do a cost benefit and say like, okay, I actually want to throw away uh, this much information to get this much savings or, or this much reduction in, in dimensions or in file size or whatever it might be, you need to be able to measure. Uh, otherwise, you can't really know what you're trading off. Yeah, so KL divergence gives you a way of kind of making that measurement. How much we've compressed it by this much volume, but you know, how much how much good stuff have we lost along the way? And specifically KL divergence is uh not KL divergence. KL divergence is yeah. specifically talking about the uh dimensionality reduction, not just general compression of data. Oh no, KL divergence is for general compression of data. This is Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's used in particular as kind of the focal point of one of the most popular embedding algorithms. So this is we're we're tying it back in here. Um, so TSNE is the algorithm that I'm thinking about when I say that. TSNE mm -hmm. is something that we have talked about on this podcast, although it's been a while. That's why it sounds vaguely familiar to me. <laughs> yes, uh, TSNE is a it's an acronym. It stands for T Distributed Stochastic Neighbors Embedding. Fun fact. That will not be on the quiz afterwards. I feel um, like that's <laughs> T-SNE, because it should have two E's. Well, but but it's a little less opinion. lyrical that way. I don't know. So Yeah. Yeah, so T-SNE, what you're doing when you do T-SNE, let me just take you inside the algorithm for a second here. The idea is you have your high-dimensional representation of your data. That's what you're starting with. And that has a certain amount of information content that's characteristic of the data that you have. Then there's a lower dimensional representation that you're trying to create or that you're trying to find. And what TSNE does is it uses the KL divergence between those two different representations of the data to pick out 
a lower dimensional representation that's at some kind of local minimum of the information that it loses along the way because of that transformation. So in TSNI is kind of moving these points around in the lower dimensional space, calculating the KL divergence between low dimensional representation and high dimensional representation. And when that divergence or the, you know, kind of lost information between those two distributions seems like it's at some kind of reasonably small or minimal value, then that's when TSNI stops and says, okay, here's your lower dimensional representation. Makes sense? Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So it's kind of like searching stepwise through uh, according to a particular algorithm to find what ideally would be the global minima, but actually is some sort of a local minima. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's to, when you found a global minimum, but it finds something that's reasonable per the KL divergence. Right. So, okay. Okay. So connection point is connection. There is a connection here between the ideas of like lossy compression and dimensionality reduction or embeddings. That's actually pretty, pretty deep and profound in my, in my view. So UMAP, UMAP is the featured algorithm of today. Uh, this is a newer uh, embedding algorithm than TSNI. So TSNI has been around for a few years. UMAP, I think I've just started to hear about in the last year or two. So I think it's it's certainly newer on the data science scene anyway, and is trying to solve the same general problem that TSNI is. So let me talk a little bit about things that TSNI isn't super great for. Uh, TSNI is not super great in two particular ways. One is that while it preserves local structure between the two different distributions. It does not preserve global structure, and we'll dig into a mo- in a moment to what that means. The second is a little easier to understand. It's slow. TSNI is it's not, it's not right. a super fast algorithm. There are ways to speed it up. Uh, it has a few different tricks that you can use to make it more computationally tractable. Um, but as a data point that I was researching this weekend, there was a data set that has I think about 70,000 examples in it. It has a few hundred or maybe like a few thousand dimensions. You need to reduce reduce it down to just a few dimensions. It takes about 45 minutes to do that with TSNI. UMAP was taking on the order of a few minutes. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a a big speed up. Order magnitude kind of thing. Yep. It's funny because in my head, when you say like, well, there's this problem, it's that it's slow. Like my first thought is, oh, well, just, you know, wait. But when you when you actually do a before and after, like looking at one versus the other, like clearly speed does matter, especially if you're doing it in any kind of live. Oh, context. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, but you mentioned the, the, what was the first thing you mentioned? Global and local, and it preserves structures better in local, but it doesn't as much in global. Uh, yeah, so TSNI favors local structure over global structure. I think this is something that's easiest to explain with an analogy, although I'm okay. sure there's a technical definition. If my memory serves, and it's been a while, so I could be wrong, um, here's the out, the analogy that I used when I was talking about local and global structure however many years ago we were talking about TSNI. Let's imagine, set aside for a moment the idea of high-dimensional and low-dimensional. Let's just imagine that we're... We're starting from two dimensions, and we want to transform into two dimensions. Okay. Uh, and so the analogy here is 
we're moving offices or we're changing around the layout of an office floor plan for some reason, like adding in just opened up a new wing or you're changing to a different floor or, you know, for some reason, everybody's switching around desks. This happens all too often in corporate environments. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This, it's like every three months. Yeah. Uh, that has been my experience as well, especially if you're in like one of these open office uh, plans. I guess this doesn't make a whole lot of sense if everybody's in offices, but I'm imagining you have like a big uh, bullpen kind of right. office situation. And so you have to, everybody has to change seats. Presumably right now, you probably uh, are seated with the people that you work with the most. So like people who are on your team. Yes. Yes. Um, I have, I'm kind of on a little sub team and I sit right near the people in my sub team and we're inside of a larger team and we all kind of sit together. And then that larger team is under like a very large kind of an, I guess called an org, an organization or something within, um, the company. And they all kind of sit together, but not fully entirely. You've got, uh, like product teams that are kind of, uh, sprinkled throughout because you need your product people to be close, but they're not necessarily managed by the same people. So yeah, there's this, there's some sort of a interesting organizational structure that happens at, I, I would say pretty much any company that has a lot of people in it, where you want the people who work, uh, on the same team or the people who work, um, on the same thing, which is not always the same to be relatively close to each other. All right, cool. So this is going to work really well for the analogy here. So so you work on this small team and you and your little nuclear team, uh, that is what we would call your local structure. Okay. So these are the people who sit closest to you, like they're literally across the desk from you. Um, and so TSNI is going to do a really good job of saying like you and the six people who sit closest to you are going to be also sitting right on top of each other in the new office. Uh, like, Hopefully not right on top of each okay, other. Okay, well, close by. <laughs> Very close by. <laughs> in a cluster. Yes. So folks who are your immediate neighbors in the old space will be your immediate neighbors in the new space. That's what we mean by local structure. But you started to then also say how there's like a, a higher level of structure to the way you sit that maybe roughly reflects like some of the product areas that you work on or like the organization that you sit in or that kind of thing. So... For example, let's say that you are working on, um, you and your immediate team are working on this big feature, and there are other small teams who also are working on that feature or other features like it. Chances are you also sit kind of in the same general area as those folks, but not quite as close to them as you do to your immediate team. This is what we would call the more global structure. This is a larger mm. scale structure. Okay. And, you know, even at the highest levels, there's probably like very big global structure where engineers and tech and product kind of sit in the same general area. And then you might have like sales and marketing that sits in a different part of the company because they're on the phone a lot. And so they need to be able to be noisy and not disturb the engineers. And there could even be this very high level structure. So that's what we mean by global structure. And so that is what might not be preserved in TSNI. Mm, yeah, so that's you, pretty important. Yeah. So you and your little team will all be sitting together, but there's no guarantee that you wouldn't be mixed in with a bunch of folks from sales right. and marketing and content and I don't even know what else. So Legal. <laughs> yeah, sure. Pick a thing. 
And so depending on the application, this could be anything from kind of a good to know slash minor point of note to something that could actually be like a really big problem. And, uh, right. cause, yeah. you know, there is, there is information in that global structure that you might, you might want to preserve as you're doing your, your embedding, moving it down to that lower dimensional space. So that is what we mean by global versus local structure. And that is something that UMAP handles more gracefully than TSNI does. Uh, UMAP will generally also kind of keep the global structure of the original data set once it does the lower dimensional embedding of the data. So why ever use TSNI at all? Because what I'm hearing you say is it only really does local structure preservation. It doesn't pay as much attention to global structure and it's 10 times slower. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have enough hands-on experience with UMAP mm. to say where any weaknesses are that it has. That's a really good question. It's a newer algorithm. So, you know, there's probably a lot of folks who are using TSNI as a little bit of like a legacy way of doing their dimensionality reduction. So if you're one of those folks, check out UMAP. It might be kind of cool. I couldn't say for sure uh, if there are certain circumstances in which TSNI is preferable, uh, but I think we could spend maybe the last few minutes of this podcast talking about the algorithm itself and that sounds good. How it works the algorithm of UMAP? Yes. Yeah. Well, we already did TSNI a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So UMAP. How does UMAP work? Uh, how does UMAP work? Right. So where TSNI was all about the callback Leibler divergence. Uh, between two different distributions. What UMAP is doing instead is it is representing the high dimensional data in a graph structure. And then it's trying to project that graph structure down onto a lower dimensional graph structure in a way that preserves the connections between the points in the graph as much as possible. So there's this intermediate data structure that we're constructing. We can get to it in a second how we construct it. But the idea is that we're trying to make a graph that connects the data points that are in our data set. Okay. What, when you say a graph, what exactly do you mean? Okay. So I mean graph in the sense of like the computer science structure. So um, let's take Like our... a bunch of nodes that are connected to exactly. each other. Kind of exactly. Oh, okay. So let's imagine, um, let's, let's use our office layout analogy and let's torture that a little bit further so um imagine that there is um we can compute a distance between any pair of people in the office and that distance will be small for people who sit close by to each other because they're just a few feet apart the distance will be large for people who are on opposite sides of the building and so based on that we can start to draw connections between individuals as a function of how far away from each other they sit. So there'll be a connection between you and the person who sits next to you, the person who sits across from you, the person who sits immediately behind you. And then depending on exactly where we wanted to start cutting things off in the graph, we could have you connected to literally everyone in the office. And there'll just be like weaker connections, weaker links to the, um, the people who sit far away. Or we could say, look, we're going to cut off this graph and say that anybody who sits more than 30 feet away isn't somebody that you need to sit by 
necessarily when you move over to your new seat in the new office plan. So, okay. So it's kind of basing, it's basing it off of the previous uh, setup, I guess. Yeah. So what it does is it's got kind of this notion of the number of neighbors that you want to be including in the graph or the, the number of neighbors who are being used to compute how far away some somebody has to be in order to be included in, you know, connected to you in the graph or not. And then kind of a characteristic distance metric that gets tuned up and down based on the number of neighbors. This is a little bit, okay. it's a little bit hard to explain, but in short, I think what it's trying to do is say, look, if you sit in a very densely populated part of the office and there are lots of people who are sitting very close by, then the distance that you need to go for someone to be considered in your local neighborhood is going to be a short distance. It might only be a couple of feet because there's just so many people who are packed in that Mm -hmm. to know who your immediate neighbors are, we don't have to look very far. Whereas if you sit somewhere out at the edge of the office in a very sparsely populated part of the office and there aren't that many people who are nearby, then there might be a longer distance that you have to go before someone is considered your neighbor. Maybe this is where the office analogy breaks down because I feel like everybody has kind of well, their desk. So, so but... I have a question to ask. Yeah. Um, I, so in this analogy, it's it's kind of strange because it feels like we're saying the way we compute how people should sit is by basing it off of the way they already sit. Mm-hmm. But could you instead do something like compute your neighbors by, I don't know, adding up, like having some sort of a, um, a metric that's based off of if you're working on the same project, maybe how many meetings you've had together historically, um, whether you're on the same team or not, all of these different things. And so that is what you could use to say your closest, quote unquote, I'm air quoting here, you're closest to these people and you're pretty far away from these other people. And then that's the, um, maybe that's the score that should be used. Yeah, you could totally use that as your distance metric. I just think it's uh, the reason I'm using how far they physically sit from you is that it's easier to visualize than right, right. how far they are from you in some like abstract workspace. But the whole point of this algorithm is that you can you could compute a distance in some high, abstract, difficult to reason about space, and then do something like project it down into two dimensions and know where you're supposed to sit on the floor plan or something like that. Like that would, that would totally work here. And I like that application. Um, That's kind of cool. But yeah, let me go back to the, the notion of how many neighbors and how nearby. I think office floor plans are not a great example of this because typically people tend to have like a pretty set little area and then they get packed in as close as they can. It's like you have your desk and that's your space. But to maybe use a slightly different geographical analogy. Uh, I live in Chicago. I live in this big high-rise condo building. There are lots and lots of people who live here, so it's very high density. So if you were going to say to me, who are your nearest neighbors? I would pick people who live within literally dozens of feet of me because I have people on all sides. Whereas you, you live in Silicon Valley, people tend to be a little bit more spaced out there, like a lot of single family homes and stuff like this. So you might pick people who live next door or across the street there. It would take you 
30 seconds or a minute or two to walk to their house instead of right, yeah. literally five seconds. And then for those of our listeners who maybe live out in the countryside, uh, your nearest neighbor might be a quarter mile away. And so for each of us, we might have a different notion of how far we should go to define what our neighbor is, our neighborhood is. And that's roughly what UMAP is able to do, if I understand it correctly, is kind of dial up and down for each point in the graph. How far away are we going to start looking for neighbors? And then every time we find a neighboring point within a, you know, a radius of that distance, we're going to draw a connection in our graph structure. And that's the way we're actually going to construct who, who is connected on this graph uh, to who. Make sense? Got it. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. So because for each point, it's going a shorter or a further distance, it kind of gets a better idea of kind of the, I don't know, the like close global structure around it. I, th I think that's right. You know, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't involved in developing this algorithm or, or anything cool like that. So I don't really know what happens if you don't have that feature of the algorithm. But my guess is mm -hmm. that local or global structure tends to dominate based on the characteristics of the data set. And then you don't have that nice balance between the two of them is my guess, but I don't actually know. Okay. okay. So the main point is that we have this way of building this graph that connects you to your nearest neighbors and defines kind of who your nearest neighbors are in a way that's appropriate for each data point individually. Once we get this graph representation, then that is a data structure that we can project down into a lower dimensionality. And here I, I don't actually know the, the ins and outs of how that projection happens, but my guess is that there's like graph specific algorithms that make that tractable. So that we end up with a new graph that's in lower dimensional space, but where the connections between the points are preserved as much as possible in the new space compared to the old space. And so what that means is that if you were close by in the old space, you will also be close by in the new space. If you were middle distance, you should also be middle distance. And if you were very far away, then you'll pr you probably won't be super close to each other in the low dimensional space. So it is, we have now achieved our goal of embedding this high dimensional data into a lower dimensional representation in a way that preserves as much as possible global and local structure. And because of that graph as the intermediate step, we have done so in a way that is computationally pretty tractable. It's kind of neat having been doing this podcast for a couple of years to see things that we've covered in the past and to see new methods for solving the same problems kind of come out over time. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the nice version. The other thing that we see sometimes that's like less heartening, but it's like something that we think sounds really cool. And then two years later, we're like, oh, that's how people use it to be terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like yeah. when we first talk, started talking about uh, generalized adversarial networks, or yeah, generative right. generative adversarial networks. And we're like, oh, this is cool and interesting. And now we're like, oh, people are using them to make videos that are fake and that we can't tell the difference. <sighs> That's not fun. Anywho. Bad job, humanity. <laughs> but yeah, some, 
sometimes, very often, more often than not, we when we have updates, it's, uh, you know, yeah, iterating on things that we've talked about before as the field starts to use them and figure out their limitations and say like, hey, we want something that also does embedding, but faster and with global structure. And then you know, people think about that for a while and they come up with an algorithm that does that, which is pretty cool. So anyway, if you are a person who's using TSNI and uh, you are interested in a little more global structure in something that runs a little faster, check out UMAP. Again, we'll have a link to some decent resources on lineardigressions.com. Um, and if you are a person who is especially struggling with big data sets, this, this comes up a lot, especially in unsupervised learning cases, uh, and you're trying to figure out how to make heads or tails of this high dimensional data that you don't really know how to deal with it, UMAP could be something that helps you out a little bit with that. So check it out. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.